0: Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and this is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. And this season, we've been spending a lot of time with questions about what does it mean to be a post-evangelical Christian? What comes after evangelicalism for those of us that used to live in that world? And honestly, if you've been anywhere on the Christian landscape, the evangelical movement, establishment, superstructure has affected you in some way or another, they've been ubiquitous in the Christian world. And that's the some of the language that you use, David, in the book was sort of that it's it's spread like a virus through self-replicating through the Christian landscape and sort of got itself into nearly everything. Oh hi. Yes. Also co-host David is here and that that's why you're here. So let not your hearts be troubled.
1: Neither let them be afraid. <laughs> hey, I memorized scripture. What's, That's a pretty good start in for this session.
0: It sure is. Cause we're gonna try to talk about the Bible. Yes, we are. I'll probably title this one, the one about the Bible. The one Or about we tried the Bible. to talk about the Bible. <laughs> Where do you wanna start, Jeremy? Maybe how evangelicalism uses scripture, I think is a good place to start. Be- Because that's where we started. We were both brought. Well, that's where I started. That's Uh, sort of how where you got thrown into when you embarked on your active
1: Christian journey. Is that a fair way to say say it? it, Yeah. Um, And in the opening of the chapter on Scripture, I do try to pay tribute to some of the legacy of that biblical centeredness. And by the way, I think this is part of the grieving process. A healthy part of the grieving process is to is to say what was good about, mm-hmm. the, about a certain stage of life. I know the Bible better than my mainline peers. Right. That was good. I, I have been to mainline churches in which I said, okay, I'd like to have us all look at Romans, whatever. And A, people won't know where the Bibles are because they haven't been used in a while. Or if it's in a worship context, you know, it's like... In the pew bible that's page 371 mm-hmm. you know I mean, we, we know where stuff is in the bible right uh we may have memorized large chunks of the bible <clears throat> we were we were taught that the bible had the answers that we needed for life and in many ways it does mm-hmm. and th- it was handed us to
0: it it was handed to us that way with grave certainty yeah. Basic information before leaving Earth. I had a t-shirt that said that. <laughs> that. Uh, okay. In middle school, I wore that thinking it would help me get girls. Uh, how that be- work for you? Very poorly. Basic <laughs> information before leaving Earth. Bible. What did help me get girls was my beautiful hair, though. I'm still in mourning about going bald.
1: Uh, I've seen that. I've seen pictures of that hair. That was something. Um. So, when I converted in a galaxy far, far away, uh, I was immediately socialized into the daily reading of the Bible. I was Quiet times. Quiet times, which I still do, by the way. I was given two Bibles. What v- versions of the Bible do you think I was given in the 70s?
0: You were given a King James for devotional reading. Ye are correct. And, <laughs> and you were given... Maybe a good news study Bible? Close. Living.
1: The living Bible. There we go. Hey, dudes, said Jesus, <laughs> let's hang out, rap a bit. Something like that. Yeah, of course. Right.
0: With some some notes, that was the one they wanted you to read.
1: I I, I may even still have that living Bible somewhere. I hope you do. I definitely have the King James Version in which I wrote in the front, the names of all of my friends who I was trying to convert, and so they are immortalized forever in that King James Version Bible. Um, we had Bible study all the time because we had Sunday school. We had training union.
0: There you Sunday go. Sunday night.
1: We had Wednesday night though. That was rarely uh, in my church. Rarely a study for young men played basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I remember being taught to memorize Scripture. There are certain Scriptures that are still in me because of that experience, um, which I could rattle off. How about this one? He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it, but he that hateth suretyship is sure. There you go. That's a sword drill for you, Uh right out of Proverbs. Proverbs, that's right. And I inv- we invite all of our listeners to translate that into modern English <laughs> and see if you understand what that verse actually means. That was means. rough. Yeah. As, even as a student of the Bible, that was rough. <sighs> um, it's so interesting. I mean, think about the countercultural uh, project of getting modern American youth not just to read and memorize the Bible, but to read a 1601. Seven? 1611, 1611 is the authorized version. 1611 version of the Bible in Shakespearean English, and to memorize that and, and attempt to uh, get girls with it. But just,
0: <laughs> so. That and carrying chairs from the fellowship hall. If you can get more than six on each arm, sh- you'll be irresistible.
1: <laughs> oh, the manliness. Um, wow, we're, we're, we're taking a trip down memory lane here. But, you know, this is this is therapeutic. I feel better about my. I feel better. But anyway, um, so wh- where things went wrong. I'm making the bold claim in the book that where things went wrong was to say that this book that we cherish should be described as inerrant mm-hmm. or infallible. Inerrant and I define it carefully in the book based on based on uh, the official definitions, but it basically means without error or misleading content, in any area that it addresses.
0: Right. And it gets conflated with some other ideas as well. I was on the phone yesterday with a potential candidate for a ministry position at my church. And I mentioned that we are not as, the leadership does not, I'll figure out how to make this sound right in the recording, that we're not hard inerrantists. And she said, so you don't believe the Bible? Wow. and Yeah that's how it works this is the mean? right way to read it
1: uh so and then infallible i interpret I mean, so in some cases that word infallible is used uh as a synonym for mm-hmm. inerrant. but in much of the more technical literature it's used as a slight softening so you might say infallible on all matters of faith and practice right okay so inerrant means if the bible says that the sun stood still on the battlefield It did. It did. And you should be able to look at the star charts and prove that
0: there is an error where the the cosmos stopped moving for 24 hours. And I've watched that documentary.
1: Wow. Yep. Okay. Uh, It used, of course, inerrancy used to be understood to mean that if you actually do the genealogy and you trace it, uh, you know, the so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so that the earth is 6,000 years old. Mm -hmm. And so the King James Version I was given they had a timeline on the right margin, and it started at four thousand four BC, October
0: eleventh, something
1: like that. Yep. Yeah.
0: At nine a.m. Eastern, that's when everything is. Started. Bishops, Bishop Usher. Yeah, Bishop th- Usher. Yeah, that's where he dates us.
1: I did not know that you and I had such similarity in in <laughs> what we were given. So I also was given a book by W. A. Criswell called "Why I Believe the Bible is Literally True." Literalism is not the same as inerrantism, but their cousins Mm -hmm. uh that was basically a way of saying genre claims like like for example that the book of jonah is a folk it's like a folk tale that teaches a really important prophetic message he didn't actually get swallowed up by a fish and live there for three days uh it's a story uh it's a story that is no less important in what it teaches. What it teaches is God has a heart for the Ninevites, too. God loves everybody. God you know, loves more people than you do. God loves more people than you do. Uh, and it, it's an attack on kind of religious ethnocentrism. I take that message with deadly seriousness, but the vehicle with which that message is conveyed is a is an is a ancient Near Eastern folktale. But the literalist perspective said, no, it can't be a folktale. It actually have to had to have happened exactly as written. So Mm -hmm. in other words, otherwise you're a liberal who's throwing out the Bible. Right. Genres are collapsed. There are different genres, but we're not allowed to recognize genres because it's all read uh, as literal factual kind of truth. So, So what I do in the chapter is to say, first of all, that we've lost a lot of people to Christianity as a whole because they were taught that the only way to read the bible is inerrantist infallibleist, or literalist or mm-hmm. some combination and then when they run into a problem like you know evolution seems kind of compelling but people tell me i can't be that and also believe the bible or i noticed that the resurrection appearances have different accounts or that um more, more or or that there are some troubling parts of the bible mm-hmm. like um <clears throat> Stories where the Bible seems to say that or does say that God is ordering genocide. It must have happened literally that way. I have a problem with that because I believe genocide is evil, and then I'm not allowed to ask such questions because it seems like I'm I'm questioning the Bible and therefore questioning God's word. And so we lost in the picture of the book. The cover is a maze. And the idea is that some people got lost in the inerrantist maze, somewhere up there, and they were never able to get out. And because they weren't able to get out, in a sense, what what I'm using that image to say is they were not able to come up with a plausible version of Christian faith for themselves as adults, because Christian faith meant inerrantist faith. They can't accept inerrantism. I guess that means they thought. I can't be a Christian.
0: Yep, then you have to throw the Bible out, because that's the only acceptable way to read it.
1: Right, it's the only acceptable way to read it. And and so I then, uh, in the chapter, do a kind of a history of the idea of inerrancy and and uh, follow some scholars who say that it looks like that word doesn't have a history that goes back into the early church, that it, it emerges after the Reformation, mm-hmm. <clears throat> either to uh, defend Protestant claims against catholics who emphasize the tradition and the magisterium and then we go sola scriptura scriptura instead and or to that the word begins to become more significantly used to defend against modern biblical criticism in the beginning in the late 18th and then into the 19th century uh we believe in an inerrant bible as opposed to a bible that uh can be critiqued in terms of its literary composition and things like that and then certainly iner- inerrantism is generally used against all kinds of more liberal or progressive Christian beliefs about the Bible. We are inerrantists as opposed to those liberals. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, but then I, I show how even people like C.S. Lewis said, you know, we might like to have a Bible that could be described as without error in content of any type. But he C. S. Lewis, an evangelical favor for the longest time, said it would be might be nice if we had that kind of text. It's that's just not the kind of text that that's we have. It's not the Bible we have. It's not and the Bible's have. okay with that. And the Bible itself is okay with
0: that. Which is fascinating because it's almost like in the con- well, it is in the conversation about the Bible, we didn't let the Bible
1: speak. We 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 needed a theory about the Bible that went beyond what the Bible itself said. Mm-hmm. But but it is more complicated than that in a sense because there's this question. Both, did God inspire the Bible, and how does God speak through the Bible to Christians and others today? Right. And those are legitimate theological questions, and so I, in the chapter, uh, attempt to unpack both of those. Um, and the basic posture that I take is, there is plenty of evidence that embedded in Scripture are words that come from God. Um, that God inspired writers. And first of all, in most cases, God inspired prophets and uh, and and events happened that people first told about orally and then eventually mm-hmm. wrote down. So the oral tradition needs to be understood.
0: Yeah, things floated around for a while, right. When, when does the the Old Testament canon is in flux? the The Hebrew scriptures are in flux. I might say at least For, until the third century B.C. Yeah, when probably. Jesus is on the scene, right? people do not agree on what is the Bible.
1: Yeah, and so when you actually take seriously the complexities of the canonization process, canonization means which books get collected within the canon, and then you realize that even today there are multiple different canons. Mm-hmm. There's a Roman Catholic, Protestant, and Eastern Orthodox canon. They're not all the same. Um, you realize you end up kind of de- having to demythologize the canonization process. And when you take it seriously, you end up with this idea. The Bible, first the Hebrew Bible, and then the Christian scriptures, which we call the New Testament. These are texts, not just one text. Right. It's a library in dialogue with itself. It's a library in dialogue with itself. It's a library that evolves over time. There's a, there's a multi-layered editing process that is very clear in the Scriptures, especially the, the Old Testament, but you see in the New Testament also, mm-hmm. but mainly the Old Testament. And, and the, this library of texts has multiple, sometimes multiple versions of the same event, certainly see that in the Gospels, and multiple perspectives, not just on details, but on theology right and these perspectives or these voices are in dialogue with one another there's a kind of intra scriptural dialogue about such basic things as why was the city of jerusalem destroyed in 587 bc mm-hmm. we have to midrash about it well, so yes yeah, so we have to we have to reflect on it and we reflect on it in the text and the text don't always agree why are we being kept in exile for so long? What's going on? When will we go back? What will the end of time look like? Um, you know, uh, what? Why do people suffer? Um, look at the difference between the Book of Proverbs and the Book of Job. Mm-hmm. i I think, I'm quite clear that the Book of Job is is in critical conversation with the wisdom tradition as a whole, such as we find it in the Book of Proverbs. In fact, uh, I talked through Job recently, and announcement: I am planning to write a commentary on the Book of Job. That's exciting. Yeah, that's my that's next new book. to me. Uh, that's my next book. Wow, we'll talk about that sometime. We'll have to. That's. Uh-huh. I have a contract offer to do that. Dun dun dun! <laughs> you heard it here first, podcast people. Um. So that's a new departure for me.
0: That That's exciting. Yeah.
1: So Job. Here, here's something that happens in Job that is incredibly radical um you know one of my favorite psalms is oh lord when i look in the heavens i see you know the work of your fingers the stars Mm -hmm. the world that you've made in light of all of that what is man that you are mindful of him the son of man that you care for him that's my niv there right yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor niv memorized psalm eight okay (laughs) deal with it people all right um At one point in Job, Job says this, Oh God, what is man that you are mindful of us, the son of man that you you care for us, or the son of man, basically, that you um, investigate us, that you punish us, that you make us suffer so much. Mm -hmm. I wish you stopped paying attention to us. Job does that. Yeah. Job is doing... Basically Midrash on Psalm eight and saying turning what was a celebration of Mm -hmm. God's care for that
0: you've noticed us.
1: What is (laughs) yeah, stop noticing us, says Job. I'd appreciate it if you'd stop noticing me. Mm -hmm. I'd like to be left alone. Now, it's there. You you can see it. Now there's this what I'm saying is that that is one of the most spectacular things about the Bible. Because the Bible offers multiple perspectives on suffering and on what God is doing, and it's it's a record—this part, Job, is a record of the struggle with God and the struggle to make sense of why bad things happen to good people or whatever. By the way, the premise of the book is that Job was a good person. and,
0: and The best person. The
1: best person. And everybody's trying to take him down and say, oh, you must be being punished, because they're trying to make his reality conform to their theology. And he says, no, and the text from the beginning says no, and at the end it says, no, he really was a righteous person. So, But Job is arguing with pop theology of his time, but that pop theology is also embedded in the book of Proverbs. So the way I teach the Bible is, um, both in this book and in class when I'm teaching, is it is a wrestle with God and with theology and with answers of all types. And because it's a wrestle, it's it's a symphony of, of conversation. Not always a symphony, sometimes more like a cacophony. Mm-hmm. No, you're wrong. No, this is how we should read it. No, that's how we should read it.
0: The, you make a, a great point about just the section called wisdom of like Job and Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm going to edit that so I don't sound like an idiot. <laughs> Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, they're bickering with each other. The three books have completely different ideas about how the world works, how God interacts with it, and how to interact with God in response. And when the Bible got canonized, we took all three and put them right next right to, next each, to other. each other, yep. and somehow we missed
1: that. Um, and then you can, as you look more broadly, uh, I noticed this um, in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is is generally agreed to be an exile text, and it's a promise of restoration. But what Isaiah 61 does in interpreting the exile is, unlike so many other voices in the canon, including earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah 61 does not interpret the exile as punishment, but as injustice. Mm -hmm. Our enemies were unjust to us. God hates robbery God hates violence, and the idea is God will restore God's people back to Israel and the wicked uh, oppressors will be punished.
0: It starts to shift to an exodus narrative with the cry of injustice going out. That's right. And a, n- inaugurating God's redemption.
1: That's right. As opposed to we're being punished for our sins. It's
0: And they start to have the idea of we were being punished, but we've paid, we've made it up, and we won't be punished forever. And now justice will be restored right it it enters dialogue with itself
1: it does it enters dialogue with itself as to how to interpret what's going on and and that also reveals that anytime human beings attempt to interpret history it's speculative but i guess the idea is here's the radical thing that i'm saying the speculations as to how to interpret history the the wrestling as to how to interpret what god is doing right now that wrestling is also visible in the Bible itself. And it's okay if we can allow the Bible to be a library of God's people doing their own wrestling and then we wrestle with their wrestling and the people who come after us wrestle with our wrestling with their wrestling and so on. We always get to go back to the text, but we also, if we pay attention, can wrestle with centuries of biblical interpretation. Both in the Jewish and the Christian tradition, mm-hmm. and so, so part of what I do in the chapter is to say that's how the Bible should be read—a library of books filled filled with wrestling. The wrestling is immensely rich, and the complexity is a much better, a much better resource for the actual complexity of human experience than a univocal, inerrant Bible. That offers one account supposedly and one interpretation of everything and if you don't see it that way you're done you're you're a heretic you're out um so i think it's a i think that's a breakthrough for me i'm really excited about it um i also say that that the role of the church in everything about the bible should be heightened and here i make a kind of a catholic move capital C Catholic, in which I say that the role of the Church, including the leadership of the Church, is is we essentially are responsible for passing the text forward from one generation to the next, keeping it alive and sacred in the life of the people, curating the exposure to the text through how we select passages for preaching Mm -hmm. and, and, and some lectionary churches that's done by the Church as a whole. In fact, I didn't know until relatively recently that in lectionary-based churches all over the world, both Protestant and Catholic, the same texts are being read on the same Sunday. Yes. It was by agreement, by ecumenical agreement. And so you can actually, on a given Sunday—and a lot of times it's tied to the church calendar, Transfiguration Sunday or Palm Sunday or uh, the four Sundays of Advent or whatever—but it's like we join together as the church to reflect on the same text at the same time.
0: Yeah, we take a journey together. We take a journey together. And if
1: you do it, if you stick to it, it's a three-year
0: cycle right? of getting the whole... The goal is to have the whole story of redemption in that three-year journey. Right.
1: And I, I did notice and report or that, that the church... Does not expo- even in the full three year cycle does not expose the people to every part of the Bible. Right. Uh, it's most of the Gospels, some of the letters, and a relatively small percentage of the Hebrew Bible, which I think reflects the church's wisdom that the texts vary in their let's call it, call it edification value. Mm-hmm. This also the way that the the lectionary tradition you always read a gospel reading always right um indicates the centrality of jesus and the stories about him and the stories by him the teachings by him which is a something to say that jesus is who we worship not scripture and we read scripture culminating in the gospel with jesus as the central authority and the central interpreter of all of the bible so my claim is that the the bible is curated by the church which is the body that compiled it edited it canonized it and passes it forward through its living communal life mm-hmm. the the move you kind of make in the book
0: is sort of a uh, the the Bible was made for man not man for the Bible Basically. so I think this is our book yeah this is this our... is a gift that was given to us
1: and and we are responsible for keeping it alive and relevant so one might say that if our theory about the Bible or our way of treating the Bible actually drives people away from Jesus then we have you might say ruined the purpose the very purpose of the Bible mm-hmm. I quote the second Timothy passage about um, all scripture inspired of God is useful for ed- ed- you know edu- edification and reproof and training mm-hmm. in righteousness and I kind of work with that a little bit but the idea is, That's what the scripture is there for. It's for training people in the way of Jesus and in a righteous life, following him. And so we want to help the Bible function in that way by not imposing theories of interpretation that actually drive people away from Jesus. And so we don't need an inerrant Bible for that. What we do need is sacred scripture. And we need a community that gathers expectantly every week and hopefully every day in their homes to say what does God want to say to us through scripture but it's not hamstrung by such a literalist or inerrantist theology about the Bible that when something comes up that is problematic it's like well I guess I have to I have to swallow every question and um, and have a faith that accepts the unacceptable and in the end, a lot of people will rebel against that and they will just give give up on faith and, and walk away. So uh, a Jesus-centered hermeneutic scripture is sacred. It's curated by the church. We listen for God's word, but we're also still able to have critical minds. We accept the texts for what they are, a library in dialogue with itself and in dialogue with God. And we accept our responsibility as interpreters to read the scripture and teach it in such a way as to draw people to Jesus instead of driving them away from him. And we accept our responsibility for doing that well.
0: Amen. I think that's a good place to close, David. Friends, that w- that was a really fun conversation, at least for me. Yeah. Um, I hope you all liked it too. I think that's one that we'll need to come back to, especially with our new revelation about the Job commentary. The I have the... The divine monologue i'm gonna you did your bible brag i'm gonna do my bible brag i have the um divine monologue poetry at the end of job memorized really that's that is Look a central you. scripture in that runs in my heart constantly um so i'm really excited to hear about some job work on the horizon so friends i hope you'll keep up with us we've got more stuff coming and as always uh interaction is welcomed and wanted we love to hear from you we've heard some great feedback and we've been able to to make adjustments based on your feedback so keep it coming we want to hear from you hit us up on social media and make sure to like and subscribe and share and put those stars in there it does a lot to help us reach a wider audience thank you for listening and we'll see you soon.